The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, Heartbreakers. Welcome back to another Breakdown Bonus episode. Once again, we're joined by trauma therapist Catherine Ripley, LMSW, and she's joining us again to talk about domestic violence. But if you want to run to her Instagram right now, check out all of her content. You can check her out on Instagram at therapy.with.com. Catherine, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So, of course, we're going to be talking about domestic violence, intimate partner violence. So if that's a really triggering subject matter for you, definitely not the episode you want to join in. So, Catherine, you were actually telling me that you're going to refer to some of the subject matter as intimate partner violence. Can you define the difference between that and domestic violence? Yes, absolutely. This is kind of like a square rectangle thing. Intimate partner violence is domestic violence, but not all domestic violence is intimate partner violence. Intimate partner violence is when there is abuse in a romantic relationship or a ex-relationship, so ex-partners or with co-parents. So sometimes like some of my clients will say like my son's father rather than saying my boyfriend or my ex-boyfriend. So all of those kinds of relationships, that is where we're talking about intimate partner violence. Domestic violence is a little bit more broad. That could be any kind of family relationship. So a parent abusing a child would also be considered domestic violence. A sibling abusing another sibling any kind of family relationship, including spouses, boyfriend, girlfriend, co-parents. Domestic violence is more broad, but since you've already told me about the story that we're going to be referring to on today's episode, I'm going to be using the term intimate partner violence, which I abbreviate as IPV for short. Well, it's great to have more terminology to be able to identify what we're actually talking about. This is definitely a really interesting case of intimate partner violence because I think for me, like when I hear the term domestic violence or anything in that realm, I immediately think of like, well, somebody's getting physically abused. But are there any other, I mean, of course, we just heard one in, in the episode that came out on Tuesday, but are there any other examples of how intimate partner violence can come up in these relationships? There's so much that still counts as abuse that is not physical. And if there's anybody who's listening at home and wants to read more about this, I would highly recommend that you go online and look up the power and control wheel. And if you're concerned about your safety at all, I'll definitely do that in an incognito browser if your partner has access to your devices. But the power and control wheel is a really good place to start in terms of if you want to learn about these different ways that abuse can show up. It could be psychological abuse, which includes things like gaslighting, trying to convince you that you're crazy, trying to convince you that something that did happen didn't actually happen, making you think that you're crazy for having very valid emotions. It can be manipulation, you know, trying to manipulate you or coerce you into doing things that you are really not comfortable with. If there are children in the relationship, sometimes abusers will use the children
children in certain ways. So trying to undermine your parenting is a form of intimate partner violence or bad mouthing you to the children, trying to turn the children against you in some way. Sometimes abusers will threaten to call child protective services and get your kids taken away from you. That's also a method of abuse. Technology is another big one that people need to be mindful of. So tracking your location on your phone, tracking your location using social media, posting things about you on social media without your consent, going through your phone without your consent, or even coercing you into giving consent to go through your phone or to go through your email. Posting pictures of you online without your permission is also a form of abuse. Threatening to put you in a mental institution if you don't do what your partner wants you to do. It's any way of trying to have power and control over you using these various different tactics. What I thought was really jarring about this relationship was that this was somebody that she knew for a majority of her life and mm-hmm. trusted and really it kind of came out of nowhere this controlling behavior. As somebody who listens to a lot of these types of stories where it sort of feels like this behavior comes out of nowhere, is there a triggering instance that maybe would fire off this kind of behavior in somebody or are there things that we can notice different behavior patterns that maybe this person had that she hadn't picked up on when they were just friends or something? There are some red flags that can come up early on in a relationship. If you notice these things, it might be time to take pause and kind of step back and say, okay, what's going on here? One of them could be trying to push the relationship to move too fast. Another one could be not being respectful of boundaries early on. And this could come up as things that seem relatively minor. Oh, I don't think I can do a date tonight. Can we do Saturday instead? And the person gets really upset and agitated about that. So examples like that where they're not really respecting boundaries or are not okay with you setting boundaries. Another thing that can come up early on in a relationship is there can be a lot of love bombing. This can be very tricky to sort of tease out, is this love bombing or is this person just really excited to be with me? (laughs) And that's why so many people can fall into these kinds of situations so easily because it is very, very difficult to tell. But if you're noticing that you're being showered with love and affection, and then as soon as you could do even the slightest thing that your partner or your new person doesn't like, the affection gets cut off very abruptly, that's a red flag that you definitely want to pay attention to. There are certain things that you can notice early on in a relationship that may indicate that there could be bigger problems that happen further down the line. As far as the other part of your question of is there anything in particular that triggers the abusive behavior to come out, I have heard a lot of clients tell me that things started to get bad either after they got married, after they got pregnant, or after they gave birth to their first child. Now, this is not a universal experience. It doesn't necessarily always happen that way. It could just be more of like a slow buildup over time, and there's not one event that makes a really big change happen. Sometimes those three events can be a turning point because the abuser in that situation may be thinking, okay, now we're married. Now I really have you. You're really mine. And I have more free reign to let all of my abusive behaviors come out. And you're going to feel as though you can't leave me now. And the same can 
can go for after you get pregnant or after you give birth to your first child. That's interesting because all of those things happened. They had their first kid together. They got married. She left her job as a hairdresser and went into the police academy. And something he kept saying to her was, well, you're just going to leave me now that you're making your own money. So I feel like it was a triggering situation for him to be like, oh my gosh, now she like she could possibly leave me like she's not the stay at home mom anymore. Yeah. And that is so important to be aware of because, you know, we were talking earlier about how there's other forms of abuse that are not physical violence. And what we tend to see in IPB situations is that abusers will escalate to physical violence when they sense that they are losing control of their partner or they may change tactics and go from one abusive tactic to another abusive tactic. Because if they sense that they may be losing control of that person, then they're going to up their game, so to speak, to try to get control back. What is it about this need for control? Is it fueling insecurities? Why do they want control so bad? So there's different ideas that people have about why abusers have this need to control their partners. There's a really good book called Why Does He Do That? by Lundy Bancroft, in case anybody's interested in reading more about this topic. But that's the book that informs a lot of my perspective about why abusers behave in this way. It really has a lot to do with social conditioning about men being entitled to control women. One of the things that he talks about in the book is that the biggest predictive factor of whether a boy is going to grow up to be a man who is abusive over his partners is how his father treats his mother. So if he's growing up in an environment where the father is abusive and controlling over the mother, then he is learning, he is getting that social message that men are supposed to control women. It really has a lot to do with patriarchy and misogyny and the way that boys receive that messaging that that kind of behavior is necessary in order to prove your masculinity and to be a man. That's so interesting. And I almost wonder if he felt a because he had a job that's very stereotypically macho and now she's coming in and she's kind of on his level joining the police force. Mm -hmm. I can see how that would bring out a lot of insecurities. What I found so terrifying about this situation was that he basically was holding over the fact that he could just send her back to jail at any point if he left her. And so I felt so deeply for her when she told me that because I'm thinking like you can't really run from the law like if he's going to say that you tried to shoot him or something. So I don't know if, if you've worked with with people who have been in similar situations, but how would you have advised this woman to get out of the situation and leave safely? That's a really tricky question because my training as a domestic violence counselor tells me that it's not a good idea to ever advise your client to leave a relationship in a particular way. And the reason for that is that leaving an abusive relationship statistically is the most dangerous time for a survivor. With as much knowledge about IP as I have, every relationship is different. Every abuser is different. It's impossible to predict all of the variables and all of the different possible outcomes that could result from that. Whenever you're developing an exit strategy, it really has to be a collaborative process between the survivor and their counselor, advocate, whatever kind of helping professional they're working with to develop a strategy where the client 
client is the one who feels that's the strategy that is most likely to work. Because for me to just go in and say, well, I had this other client who left in this way, maybe that'll work for you. That could potentially be leading the person into a very dangerous situation because what worked for one client is not necessarily going to work for the other. And the survivor is the only person who really has an intuitive sense of what their partner is likely to do, what they're not likely to do. It's going to be a risky situation no matter what, but the survivor in that relationship is the only person who can really make that decision about what is the best way for them to get out of it. I, as the worker, can offer resources that they may want to reach out to or that they may want to utilize. The way that I was trained is that you never advise somebody to leave in a particular way. I mean, that makes total sense. I completely understand. So when she went to jail and she came back, like she felt like she couldn't leave because, you know, if she leaves, she's going to get sent back to jail. But I can imagine there's a lot of victims that return to their partners after leaving. I would wonder from a victim's perspective why they would go back. In a lot of cases, it is a fear about, oh, you know, if I don't go back, then maybe he'll call the police on me again. If I don't go back, then maybe he will try to get my kids taken away from me. So it can be responding to the threats of the abuser. Sometimes it may be a situation where the person might feel like it's easier to go back to the relationship. There are some situations where the abuser is not necessarily threatening to do something that will harm the survivor's safety, but they could be harassing them, stalking them, using various other different abusive tactics that just make their life hell. I mean, I've had some conversations with clients who have left the relationship and who have said to me, I really don't want to be with him. I don't want to be in that relationship. But I honestly feel like the abuse that I was experiencing when I was with him was not as bad as the abuse that I'm experiencing now that I've left him. That can be a factor sometimes. People might think, well, I don't really want to be with this person, but it might just be easier. I might endure less suffering if I go back to this relationship. And then sometimes it could be there is just a really strong attachment there. You know, even though this is abuse, there's still attachment, there's still love in in that relationship. And so sometimes people go back because they still love the person and they still have that hope that maybe they can make it work with them. And that's okay. You know, I've had clients who have left and then gone back and then left again. It's a process of grief. You know, it's a process of grief, realizing that this person is not the same as they were when you first started the relationship. And so sometimes the grieving process involves going back and then leaving again. And you may have to go through that cycle several times. Everybody's journey is different. Yeah, that was one of the most heart-wrenching things that she said in this interview. She said, like, I knew this person my whole life and I literally couldn't believe that somebody that I loved and respected this much for so long could do these things to me. Mm-hmm. How can victims separate the person they knew versus the person that's in front of them at this point in time? There's two answers to this question. One is that it's important to have some knowledge and some awareness about the behavior of abusers and the way that they conceal certain parts of themselves in the beginning of a relationship 
or maybe when you're just friends with that person, they're not going to show you certain parts of themselves that then come out later on when you are a romantic couple. Because abusers know that if they show you those abusive and controlling parts of themselves right off the bat, that you're not going to want to be in a relationship with them. They deliberately hide those things in the beginning, in the early stages. And then they let them come out later when they feel more comfortable or when they feel like that relationship is more solid and it's going to be more difficult for the person to leave. So that, I think, is the first part, understanding that pattern in abuser behavior to sort of make sense of, is this person so different than they were when I first knew them in the beginning? And then the second part of this question, I think, is just recognizing that you're going to be going through a grief process. If you're realizing, oh, wait, I don't think that I'm in a relationship with the same person anymore. Like, this is a different person than they were in the beginning. That is grief. And if we can label that as grief, then you can recognize, okay, you know, there are stages of grief. Denial is a stage of grief. Anger, bartering. It doesn't necessarily make it easier to deal with, but if you have the framework of grief to label what it is that you're going through, then I think it's easier to see, okay, I understand why it's difficult for me to accept that I no longer have this same relationship that I did in the beginning. Yeah. And leaving, as you said, it's the most dangerous time for a victim, but then you're also like having to grieve the relationship and who the per- mm-hmm. that person was, along with all the trauma from that experience. When dealing with um, somebody who's been a victim of intimate partner violence, what would you say is a, is a good first step in therapy? Is there like a typically like a first exposition towards dealing with this really traumatic event? So in trauma therapy, we always start with stabilization, no matter what. And stabilization means establishing safety in your environment and establishing safety within yourself. So this could look a little bit different for everybody, depending on what they're coming in with. A lot of times survivors of intimate partner violence need to work on establishing safety in their environment first. If you've left the relationship, you may need to work on kind of re-establishing yourself as a single person, making sure that you have safeguards in place, like in case the abuser were to pop up again, do you have a plan for what you're going to do? If you have to co-parent with this person, do you have a plan for how you're going to do that in a way that is manageable for you? Do you have supportive people around you? A lot of times abusers will isolate as one of their tactics. They will cut you off from friends and family members. So one of the things that you may have to do is that you may have to rebuild your support system. So all of that is external stabilization. And then internal stabilization has to do with emotional regulation. A lot of survivors of intimate partner violence are going to have sort of classic PTSD expressions of exaggerated startle response, insomnia, intrusive memories about what happened. And so the first step is going to be giving a lot of coping tools to be able to deal with those things and to be able to bring that hypervigilance and the hyperactivation down a little bit so that you can feel a little bit calmer and a little bit more relaxed. I can imagine it's been incredibly difficult having to work with people who have experienced that and just not feeling safe within yourself. Mm -hmm. I know it's a very traumatic thing to have to go through. And so if there's somebody listening who's maybe afraid of A, having to leave a situation and then B, having to deal with that kind of trauma and that emotional work, is there any kind of words of encouragement or just maybe advice you would give to that person listening in? So I would 
would definitely say take your time and don't try to do too much all at once. It is going to be difficult and it's going to take time. But if you are thinking about all like all of the different steps that you're going to have to go through in the process all at the same time, that's probably going to be very overwhelming. So I would definitely say breaking it down and really doing triage of like, okay, what do I need to do first? If I'm still in this relationship, do I need to work on establishing an exit strategy? I would say go online and find a hotline number for your area. And again, do this in an incognito browser unless you are absolutely certain that your partner does not have access to your devices. See if you can find a hotline number so that you can connect with an advocate or a counselor who is trained in dealing with this type of situation so that you have somebody who can support you in doing triage, figuring out what's the most important thing that you need to focus on first and only do that thing. Don't think about the rest of it. Just focus on what's the most important priority and then you can worry about what comes later. Thank you so much, Catherine. I mean, this is so important for people to hear and I'm just thinking about people listening that are maybe having to think about getting out, but people who are currently in this situation right now. So thank you so much for coming on and giving your insight on this particular episode, but also just intimate partner violence in general. Again, for everybody listening, you can check out Catherine on Instagram at therapy.with.catherine or just check out the link tree in the episode description. Thanks again, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. 